Hello and welcome to another episode of The Unfinished Cubby. With me today is Jason Hilda. We are going to be speaking about a topic that I have great interest in and uh, Jason has great knowledge in, that being the topic of intentional communities. Thanks for joining me so early this morning, Jason. Good morning and it's a real pleasure to be here with you, Chris. Yeah. It looks, you look uh, wrapped up. Is it pretty cold there at Crystal Waters? Uh, no, it's um, uh, just getting out of bed and uh, before the, the, the heat of the, the the morning radiator gets going. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's nice. I like this time of year. Cool. Um, so, Jason, I had flagged that I, I wanted to interview you sometime and, and we've... Um, recently crossed paths again and um, so I'm really glad to get to have this conversation with you. I'm So the Unfinished Cubby is about work-life balance and I'm really interested to talk to you about um, your PhD topic, uh, which I know is around intentional communities. I'm not sure what the actual exact topic is. Um, and, yeah, I have a personal... In, well, I have a personal interest in intentional communities generally. I, I have this slightly nebulous vision of living on land in community. And I have spent time at Crystal Waters where you are and, and, and in other intentional communities around the world. And um, I, I love what, what one gets from living in community and, and I also know there's many challenges to it too. Um, so... My first question maybe will be, what was the topic of your PhD? Okay, it's a great question. It's a good place to start. Uh, the end uh, topic of my PhD was looking at urban sociology. What was the um, social, ecological and economic benefits and challenges of living in an intentional community? And that evolved over, over time. Uh, uh, because initially I started uh, with a quite a utopian look at communities. Oh, what was great about them and uh, how could I help to bring that message to the world? And uh, what I was recommended to do, and I'm glad that I did, was to, to look at more of an objective view of uh, intentional communities. And uh, throughout that, um, I found the... the uh, that the intentional communities, and you mentioned nebulous, intentional communities are often seen as uh, quite utopian and also a bit of fear. Uh, there's uh, a fear about uh, hippieism or communism or, or um, cultism even. So in my thesis topic, I chose to uh, broaden it and called it intentional community living arrangements because I was really interested in the living arrangement component rather than in so much the idea, the ideology or the philosophy. And um, in the end, title of my thesis was called We Have Lived Together More Than and Longer Than the Average Australian Family, which pretty much sums up some intentional communities. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And by living arrangement, then, are you, what, what, is, what does that refer to specifically? Does that refer to the, the 
the, the dwellings and the rules by which people... Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So very much uh, in some communities they're called rules. Uh, in others they're called guidelines. Um, I tend to think of it as the governance uh, in, a, in a really positive aspect. Um, what, what makes the community function? And what I've discovered is that there's uh, the social uh, characteristics, the social governance and, the, and how people uh, choose to spend their time together and also choose to spend time alone uh, is what makes communities work well. And having really good agreements about that in a, in a living arrangement, uh, I believe, is or what I've discovered and also what I believe personally is uh, is vital to the, the community functioning over both the short term and the long term. And living arrangements can be everything, um, but co-created by the people themselves. They decide on um, what are their living arrangements. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if I've cherry-picked this, but it certainly stood out to me in what you just said. Um, what I even heard, correct me if this is, I'm taking it too far, was that like an absolutely, like perhaps the foundational piece is clear agreements around together time and alone time. Is that yes, fair? Very, yeah. very much so, yeah. And yes, go on. No, just like I, I, that makes a lot of sense to me and it's something personally that I've really, um, I guess, explored a lot in the last six months. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I tend to think of it as a spectrum. And when I first started to think of most things as a spectrum in the intentional community living arrangements, uh, it was a lot easier for me to understand. So one person might be at one end of the spectrum where that they really want to have a lot of alone time and therefore will design their home and their how much they interact with others around that. Right up the other end of the spectrum where someone absolutely loves being in amongst everybody all the time. And a, a good functioning community, in my opinion, has to have agreements around that ability to have loan time right through to there's, you know, you're going to be living communally in some uh, fashion, therefore there does need to be agreements around a certain base level of, of communal time and uh, I, I think that communities that have that spectrum in mind and the flexibility in mind are the ones that are successful and uh, I believe that new communities uh, need to have that, that level of spectrum understanding because we're all different and um, and also we have different times in our life so Mm -hmm. uh, at, a, at a younger time in life, somebody might really like to be together collectively. As you have children, you want to have uh, space with your with your um, your family unit. And then, as you get older, you might choose to to be both alone but also connected. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, and. Presumably, this applies equally to families and to intentional communities. Yes, yeah. Well, uh, there's something about uh, family, uh, sorry, community that I came across early in my research is that 
um, a community is a quasi family. Sure. Uh, as it's as it evolves and people spend more time with each other, a familyness starts to develop that might not be the, the family of origin, or it might be the family of origin too. But it is, uh, in some places, in some cases, a replacement for family or in addition to family. And it's really important to keep that in mind. Cool. I guess I, I, I'd maybe like to go into that a little bit more because I, I think it's really, really valuable and, and to kind of <clears throat> get a bit more information and make it practical. What, what kind of form do those kind of agreements take or can they take or should they take? Yes. Oh, it's a, um, uh, how, how long is a piece of string <laughs> or, or how, yeah. how do you make a cake? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, I believe it, it really starts with the why are people coming together mm. so a, a a utopian community utopia meaning a, a, a an unreal place or an idealized place so that's the definition of utopia which often people in an intentional community living arrangement seek that utopia that that ideal place um a community that starts with why by why I mean, oh, why are we getting together? What's our purpose? Has a an ability to create really good governance and agreements over time. A community that doesn't start there, just oh, come on, let's get on with it, or we'll figure it out as we go along. Um, the agreements take time to evolve, and also are often fraught with uh, the challenges and sometimes disaster too. So what forms it could take um, if we look at some practical design, because this is important too, the design of the actual community, and by design I mean the, the physical structures, the buildings, the homes, the um, what, are, what are people doing collectively. There's a spectrum in there as well. Um, so... Uh, the physical design of a place um, being co-housing is one model. That's a, a, an architectural model, and that often has self-contained dwellings that are clustered centrally around communal facilities, like a community kitchen, a community uh, dining room or media room or workshop or kids' space or whatever it is. Um, the co-housing has a has a strong mix of having that self-contained uh, dwelling so that people can uh, um, retreat, I suppose, to their, their own home and do everything they need to and then come out uh, from there to do to interact communally. Now, in that particular model, um, governance would be around, well, uh, how many times per week will we have a shared meal? It might be two. Co-housing is often two or three times a week uh, a shared meal, and shared meal meaning the whole community is invited, um, and agreements around well, who will cook and how often per month will you cook. Um, so that, that's a practical example of, uh, of uh, governance agreements. Um, and then there's, okay, well, how do we run the place? Because every, oh, a key component of uh, living communally 
is you're going to share something and that might be the communal spaces or community cars or something like that. So there's a whole level of agreements around, um, okay, how do we manage our shared facilities and resources? Who will do it? How much will it cost? Um, and things like that. And uh, there's something I'd like to add in here. Uh, good agreements create good company or good uh, interactions. And here in Australia, one thing I've found in my research, so I visited communities in Australia as well as European communities. And a finding that I came that I came across was that Australians were used to our single nuclear family in a separate block or a separate unit or a separate apartment and not really doing that much uh, interactively community uh, with community except uh, when we choose to and therefore we're not so good in my opinion we're not so good and I'm generalizing about Australians here but it is what my findings show uh, we're not so good about the agreements of how we interact uh, with our neighbour. <clears throat> By comparison, Europeans were, um, because they're used to being together a lot more. So I, I asked the question, why? And what I found is that the European communities had a commitment to learning to communicate and mm. learning to collaboratively make agreements. And I think that this is a, a really important thing for Australian communities that, okay, well, one of our agreements is once a year we go on a retreat and we're going to learn about communication or we're going to learn about conflict resolution or nonviolent communication, things like that. And that level of commitment to do that, I think, helps to make successful agreements and therefore successful communities. I, for one... I choose to live in a way that I'm continually learning how can I communicate better, how can I interact better with uh, the community around me. And I, I think that uh, if that is embedded in a, a community's foundation, then they're more likely to be successful over the long term. Cool. That's a <clears throat> really interesting finding. And I... First of all, you are a, a wonderful communicator. That's something that I enjoy about you very much. It's always... Um, Thank you. I appreciate yeah. your acknowledgement. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, I <clears throat> I think I agree with you in a, in a kind of general sense. I mean, I'm, I certainly don't disagree, but, I, you know, of, of the knowledge I have, just the feeling I have in, in a lot of European countries, there's, there's a much more... A sense of everybody being on the same team, I guess, and, and working together than you get in Australia. That might not be the best choice of words for that. But um, I'm curious, what, do you have any um, reflections on why that would be? Why Australians are not so good at the... Uh, I do. There's there's two things. So I haven't uh, delved into this in great detail, but the, the research did show me the psyche of um, the European mindset is that uh, there's a lot of people living in a small place. Sure. And for generations and generations and generations. So that brings up conflict. We, we see conflict in Europe. It's 
just like everywhere else in the world. However, there's a there's a sense of um, people being closer uh, and more populated and more dense, dense in population density, um, and therefore needing to have some level of tolerance. Mm. Um, and whatever the reason that that doesn't work um, throughout history, be it religion or politics or, or money or whatever, that hasn't worked. But over time, because I believe the density has almost uh, encouraged people to get used to being close. Like when I've lived in Europe, you're sitting on the train and you're really close to people. On the bus, mm. really close to people. Because in Australia, you catch a bus or a train, things are spread out. Um, now that so that's a so space is one thing. And uh, at the beginning of the nation of Australia, um, after invasion, when uh, Governor Arthur Phillip was making a statement. To the, to the new nation about, or sorry, we weren't a nation at that time, um, a single nation, was making a statement about, uh, in, his, in his address to, to people, was making a statement that each person, each man actually, uh, could, because that's what it was, the, the men were the landholders, mm -hmm. each man could have his own, uh, be the lord of his own land, and that, interestingly, the size and the dimensions that he talked about in his opening speech were the uh, precursor to the suburban uh, block, 600-square-metre block or a quarter-acre block. Wow. And so that became embedded in planning law, in um, trade law, all sorts of things right from the beginning of Australia. And Australia was um, in the 1890s. Uh, the most suburbanized nation in the world. So we, we had a sense of having our own space, our own great Australian dream, block a house on a separate block, right from the, the early beginnings. Interesting. <clears throat> and that, that has, I believe, enabled a, a sense of wanting to separate and have high fences and this is my block and, Mm. Uh, I, I don't need so much to deal with the neighbour. I'm space enough away from them. Mm. But they're my two theories, and I, I haven't delved deeply into them, but uh, on an intuitive and also research level, I, I think that there's a great basis in that. Cool. Uh, interesting, interesting. Um, and, and, and Chris, I'd, I'd like to add to that intentional community living arrangements counter that so when you choose to live communally in a communal living arrangement you're going to be closer and there's mm -hmm. a purpose to that there, there, there's a there's, there's um, reasons people want to do that but the end result is that you will end up being close together and there will be a sense of sharing mm -hmm. yeah. Interesting. And <clears throat> I, I feel like too, I, I have this kind of a view that I have of the world at the moment is um, shaped around my notion of like Twitter in particular. And Twitter to me is, is kind of, it's, it's Donald Trump and it's kind of like conflicting just hatred where people are just venting their own random 
trauma and, and shouting at each other. And I feel like that is a property of our time um, to, to, to the world being connected like that and able to communicate and sort of, I think we had the luxury humans, I don't know called the luxury, but the, um, the natural tendency was, is to believe that the, the ideas and the world that I've been brought up in, which is my family and few friends, that that is how most people think. Um, and, and that those shared ideas prevail. And then actually I think on a certain level we're much more diverse in our thinking around the world than most of us imagine. And that's kind of in everybody's faces now that we can all talk with each other all at once immediately. And, um, yeah, tolerance seems to me to be the most important thing for our children to learn and for we as human beings to learn for a, a future where we're all connected. Um, yeah. It, it feels like time to talk about the, uh, the elephant in the room or the, the other aspect, um, and that is intolerance and what goes wrong uh, or what can go wrong in intentional community living arrangements just like any other part of society or family or um, mates um, things go wrong there's differences of opinion and in my opinion my belief uh, from what the research showed me when there's differences of opinion and you have good agreements good governance and a good philosophy of why that you're living together Differences of opinion can be um, sorted out. People can come together because they've got some tools to be able to come together and say, shit, we got shit on our liver. So-and-so's done something or I've done something that doesn't work with others. Let's talk it out. And if we can't talk it out, let's get the help of other people to talk it out and come up with a resolution. That's in a, in a really positive, healthy uh, communal living arrangement. In a place where the agreements aren't in place, um, differences of opinion, which may start quite small, or they could be large, but they could start quite small, can lead to conflict. And conflict leads to tension and, and disintegration and before... Um, in a very short time, actually, it can lead to the community fracturing. It can lead to and real differences of the philosophy to the point where the community could separate. One community I visited, they had conflict uh, and they didn't have the tools and they didn't have the agreements in place. How do we deal with it before this conflict? that led to fracturing the community where people were walking past each other with uh, with the level of just not interacting and community meals stopped and the community was in danger of failing to the point where they would have had to sell things off. And that's quite common. Um, I've seen various statistics, but um, they range from 90% to 95% 
uh, of failure rates of communal living arrangements, so intentional communities, is around 90 to 95% failure rates. Whoa. <clears throat> now, wow. that's, akin, that's akin with small businesses. Yeah, right. Um, divorces aren't anywhere near as high as that, but that's significant. So um, it's really important to acknowledge that spectrum that whilst an intentional community living arrangement is a great thing to aim towards, it's, it can be a lot of commitment or it is a lot of commitment and without good agreements in place, it's got a very high chance, not just um, possible but probable that it will fail. That significantly reduces when you've got good agreements and governance and a conflict resolution process. So um, Diana Leaf Christensen, which is a, a great author on how to start communities, talks about you start with the um, what do we do when things go wrong? Rather than finish with that and wait for it to happen. Sure. That's one of the, the first things, the first meetings that happen is, oh, well, you know, we're in a good, we're in a good, vibe right now things are going well but let's talk now about what do we do if and, and yeah are there well-trodden paths for that or do you have a recommendation of <clears throat> very very much yep. so and that that is from seeing what works in community living arrangements in intentional community living arrangements um and that is have it written and have it agreed right from the beginning something like when two people have a difference of opinion, let's talk about it. If we can't talk about it and can't come to a resolution, let's get a third person in our community to help us. And with that third person, let's talk about it. And if we can't come up with a resolution, let's get a, another, uh, this time, objective person outside the community to help us. And if that doesn't work, then let's get legal counsel or, or professional counsel um, that's specifically trained in, trained in conflict resolution. Oh, and a key part well before all of this, my opinion, my recommendation, a very strong recommendation is uh, let's have at least a quarter or a half of our community attend non-violent communication workshop, mm -hmm. which is often called compassionate communication mm -hmm. workshops too. And they're becoming quite common across intentional community living arrangements in Europe. And here in Australia, they're just starting to, to get, by they, I mean the courses, mm -hmm. are just starting to gather momentum. So that's a, a number one recommendation is, is for people, at least a couple of people in the community have specific training on how do we manage differences of opinion. It's vital. And I think that that could even extend to a family. How wonderful it would be to have mum, dad, and maybe kids, even if they're interested, because there are children's workshops in this too. Let's go to an NBC course. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Um, it, which, which goes, I mean, you, you mentioned that right at the beginning, is one of the foundational things to success is that, that commitment to learning to communicate. And... Um, that we, um, 
yeah, I, I completely agree that there's huge value in that. We um, have also done um, a, a PET course, which is the same kind of thing, understanding needs, but PET stands for parent effectiveness training. And so that's, wow. it's like a nonviolent communication, except, um, yeah, targeted for, for hearing your children's needs and, you know, starting from a baby, they're not able to articulate what their needs are, but they're still expressing them. And, and so hearing through what's said to what the actual need is, the emotional need and listening and responding to that. Um, Thank you, cool. Chris. I'm going I'm to jot that one down. PET or afterwards, could you send me details of that? I shall, and I'll include it in there. There's a local woman, Leanne Horrell, that runs um, courses uh, at the school and I can recommend them. Um, yeah. I've also done, I can't remember what it was called, but we, we did an online course that, um what wasn't bad um but yeah do you have do you have a course that you recommend for adults um i, I do not like the term non-violent communication just because it's kind of got violent front and center yes. uh, but oh. um needs-based communication oh. yeah sorry go ahead yeah yeah i agree uh i'm a big believer in uh putting energy into the, the positive or what you want to achieve rather than saying no to the thing you don't want. So, uh, and NVC is now going through what evolution called, now it's being called compassionate communication. Nice, that's much nicer. Unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but presently it's still called NVC. So NVC, um, I don't think it's an association. Uh, I can send you and listeners details on that. But if you Googled or didn't do a Google, if you did an Ecosia search, which is a green search engine, by the way. Oh, nice. Um, if you did an Ecosia search on uh, NVC Australia, uh, it lists uh, NVC certified practitioners throughout every state, and they range from online courses right through to... Uh, I've done a two-day retreat, which was uh, really wonderful to do uh, with my partner. And uh, so immersing in that, um, is a recommendation. Uh, people can go the next step to become an NBC certified practitioner themselves. Uh, I think it's a couple of weeks training. Yeah, right. um, Just an online course there? Uh, they, they range from online to in-person too. Yeah, and right. um, uh, I believe that this is a great skill that not just in community but can be in school groups or, or people in, in community roles, so employment, uh, can mm. be part of their, their, um, their skill set. How often do you see communities um, where there is this uh, dedication and, and, and have, have you been in, how common is it where it's like written in that everybody attend one of these courses or regularly sort of brush up on their communication skills? Um, I, so to clarify something, uh, when I, the, the communities that I chose to visit, I had some criteria about um, uh, them before I visited, and one was that they had longevity, so they'd existed for a while, and that they had some governance structure in place, and that they were open to visitors, that was a, an important, because I visited the communities and stayed in uh, most of them. Um, so therefore, I was already uh, visiting successful communities, mm -hmm. uh, and that they, they had 
the structure in place. All of them, uh, bar one, there's a retirement village that I visited in the Netherlands. <laughs> mm. um, perhaps I could talk a little bit uh, after this about the, the breadth of the communities that I visited. I visited all the communities bar one that I visited out of 11 communities during my research all had uh, uh, a commitment for some part of their community uh, interaction. And by some part, I mean at least once per year to, yeah. to attend a course. Cool. Uh, some, some had written in it that they would have a retreat every three months. Like uh, Stephen yeah. Linden and Fit Wintorn and Seek uh, in Germany, uh, they, they had a retreat every every year for the whole community, but other retreats happening every couple of months. And I suppose anything that you saw, <clears throat> just given that they your initial criteria of them having that longevity, I suppose anything that you saw there. Um, presuming the community was, for the most part, getting along, um, would be an ingredient um, that, that is necessary or, or, or likely important for success. Um, what, um, the, the other one that I heard you mention then is like the why. Would you agree, is that a, a, a fundamental to, potentially fundamental to a successful community? Yes, very much so, Chris. Uh... Uh, so, uh, um, to, to let you and, uh, and listeners know, I'm now having finished the studies, uh, wanting to translate the studies into something tangible for, for, to help people. So developing um, an online course and an in-person two-day retreat and a seven-day retreat um, to, to look at, okay, you're a group of people and you want to form a community. How do you go about doing that? And the very first question or the very first exercise is why are you wanting to do this? And um, it could be a philo philosophical reason, it could be a religious group. It could be that you're a group of people who are eco-warriors eco and wanting to cut down on, on our planetary emissions. Um, or that you're a family. And with a group of families and you want to co-parent a bunch of kids and have great fun doing it. Um, whatever that why is, when it's written, when it's talked about, when it's dreamed about collectively and visioned collectively, you have a very, very high chance of success uh, because it'll help you to get through the tough times. Yeah. It'll, it'll power you to go through the good times, but through the tough times, you've got, oh, wow, things aren't going well. Why are we doing this again? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're back to our, our vision, and it helps. Yeah, cool. And and I, I've certainly heard that before, and, I, you know, that's true in business and, and I, I, I guess in just about any endeavour. And, look, I realise this is out of scope, but this is a question I've struggled with my whole life, so I might see if you've got any answers for me. Um, how do you find your why? How do people find a why, um, individually especially, and, and then together? Um, from my personal experience and also community experience, they're the same. Okay. And that's um, taking the time to dream 
or retreat and having a having a skilled uh, facilitator to to hold space for communal dreaming as well as individual dreaming i use the word dreaming i believe in the importance of dreaming but it, that word could also be visioning too um so uh, uh, how this came to me i was asking questions myself at uh, before the birth of my our daughter and was looking at life I was uh, quite successful in a corporate job in Europe and we were living there having a quite an amazing materially uh, abundant life and privileged life. And what I saw was the more I read uh, a, a disconnect between that and what was going on in the planet, what was going on in society. And I was really asking questions. Oh, what do I want for children that come after me? Mm. And a friend said to me, have you ever heard of Fintorn Founder, which is Fintorn Foundation in Scotland? And I went there and I did a course called Experience Week, so living in community for a week, and it opened my eyes. And so much so that I wanted to go again, and I did Life Purpose 1, and some months later I went back and did Life Purpose 2. And in that process, had a period of retreat from family, from work, from all sorts, really engaging with what's my why. And I'm living my why right now, of, and I've just been living it through doing a PhD of, uh, of community living, how do I understand and how do I share about community living. That's my why, or part of my why. I would recommend two stages one is finding out the individual why and then when people know their individual why's come together and say okay let's hear everybody's individual why what's your philosophy what's the community look like why do you want to do this and then from that gather and harvest the communal why because that is what uh individual with the communal connection and as i mentioned before that's a facilitated process so if somebody in your group skilled at doing that great if you don't have that uh, spend time commit to spending time to either online or go and see uh, 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 go to a course to do something like that or find whatever way it is what uh, what's that called facilitation of Visioning is that a is that a uh, can you just go and find someone who does that is that um, well I'm planning to offer it all right excellent because, I, because yeah. I, I have been both trained and uh, gaining experience at, at facilitation and so far the feedback I've had from volunteer groups is that uh, uh, it really helps to gel that for people um, there's also dragon dreaming which is a guy. I'm hearing a lot of great things about the, the Dragon Dreaming. Um, uh, it, it's based a, upon Indigenous um, belief systems. Um, you know, I haven't done a lot of research and I probably need to because it's good to understand who else is doing work in this space. 
Well, no, look, thank you. That's, that's um, something that I have always struggled with my whole life and having children sort of makes it easier. That sort of just creates priorities. And, um, but there's always, uh, for me, sorry, you're <laughs> quite a tangent from the community thing, but I, um, it's sort of the prescribed path of, you know, having a, a nine to five job and just kind of living there and, and, and not thinking too deeply or, or, or trying to come up with your own path too much is so much easier and it kind of feels so much safer too. You sort of said that in another talk, there's not um, the condemnation of getting it wrong if you're following the prescribed path, you know, you're sort of doing your best there. But if you're going too far off the beaten path, then um, that, I don't know, is much more likely to be harshly judged, um, especially um, in challenging times. Yeah. Chris, just as a, a point of reference or what I'm hearing from you is a seeking yes. and also a realisation of how, how important it is to make sure that the autopilot that happens, the, the family, the work, things like that, they can be together and um, so to take take the time to do the dreaming work can be seen as hard work, but it is also really rewarding. Um, and uh, I believe, and it doesn't have to be yours or anyone else's, I believe we are in a time on the planet when this is necessary to do this dreaming work because the the way that we have done it for... Uh, since the Industrial Revolution in the West, um, is that the autopilot is starting not to work. There's not mm. a criticism on anyone or anything, but the wheels are falling off the machine. And therefore, we need to come up with other ways because our planet is, is uh, challenged um, by, by meeting our needs and we're polluting too much and also our population um, whether we want to or not we're going to live closer to each other because the world's becoming more urbanized the world's population I should say mm. therefore a skill set that is now in the 21st century needed is how to get on with each other uh, and people who don't have that or don't put some time into developing that are being part of the problem. Part of the solution is uh, finding ways to 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 get on with each other and use our resources more effectively. Teach our kids to to get on with each other, um, and it also feels good. Yes, it's, it can be hard work, but it feels good to do the work to go through the challenges and, and come up with great solutions. Mm. Um, I definitely, I think like my advice to anyone who's wanting to, to change their lives is, um, to get some space in it, first of all, to figure out if you can work part-time or whatever it takes to just have a bit of breathing room, because when that's not there, you just, you, you do need to be on that autopilot to get through each day. There's just not time to, and so that's something I, I've learned a long time ago and I, I, you know, I, I do like my life very much and, and attribute 
a lot of it to having created that space and then letting me craft it. But then really, I don't know, the notion of a, a, a bigger purpose, um, it, it's tempered. Anyway, it, it's somewhere that I really would like to go. And to be clear, and I'm sure that we can't do it now, but you, you are saying that is something that you um, are looking, like that's something that you're offering now is yes. like facilitation of someone finding their own personal vision as well. Is that correct? Uh, I, I, more community-focused. More, focused. more uh, community-focused. Yeah. I don't, don't aspire to being the uh, finding um, the, the individual. Yeah, it's the individual within the collective. There, there's many, many people who, and many um, leaders and philosophers who who offer the individual. I, I think the evolution is is um, doing the work for self, uh, with self, and within community that we're, we're we're sorely lacking in a way as a as a species as a as a humanity. And um, I think this is the evolution, being able to do it together. And I've heard the saying that um, perhaps, I don't know the philosopher, but perhaps the next um, Buddha or the next incarnation of Buddha will no longer be an individual but be a community. I can feel it in my body. There's, there's vibration in there. But that is a, is a statement on, Wow. This could be very much the time of humanity's evolution. So that they're coming back to the we again. Is that we started as a we individually, as a as a uh, when we were walking across the savanna or became prostrate, standing upright. Um, we didn't survive if we were alone. Yet we've become we've evolved to become an individualized uh, society where the, there's a lot of aloneness, um, meanness, individualization, and perhaps the next evolution. It's not to go back to to uh, to de-evolution, but an evolution, a, a continuing growth is how can we be the individual within the group so there's a definition of both, both a me and a we? But surely the individuals need to have, like, some good personal clarity and self-knowledge and, and know their own whys to some extent before you can find a collective one. Very, very much so. And that's a responsibility for self-discipline and self-knowledge and self-growth. And... Maybe I'm going to show a bit of my, my belief systems here, but um, if I'm watching TV and uh, uh, spending my time on, on pursuits that are, in my opinion, a distraction continually, it's, it's good to do those things sometimes, but if I'm spending most of my time on the individual uh, uh, consumption uh, of of, uh, of life, of things, of material things, of um, material experiences, then there's less time for me to, to focus on that why and how can I improve and what is my place in the world. Uh, so getting that balance is really, really important. And it is a, a balance. And I understand right at the beginning, your, your talk, uh, the, these podcasts are about the 
getting balance in work life. Um, uh, I believe it's really important um, for uh, less is more and uh, smaller, more, more, more practice that I partake uh, in is rather than having big retreats, which I like to do, um, but having smaller retreats in the day. I'm just going back to reflect in a moment, oh, there's stuff happening and I'm not dealing with it very well, to just have some a moment or two of quiet time uh, to reflect, okay, uh, back to why. Why am I doing this? What's, what's happening here? As much as I can. And often it, not often, sometimes it doesn't work, and some days it's often it doesn't work. But that importance to have smaller reflections to keep coming back to why am I doing this uh, really helps me. It helped me to get through my PhD. It's helped me as a father. Uh, it's helped me to um, explore community-ness. Cool. So that's having a little bit of time for yourself, but it's present time. It's not um, watching Netflix time and... Yeah. 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 All right. And is, is that your answer if I'm to ask you, I want to learn my own why, I want to know myself better and know what drives me and, and where I'm going. Is, is that your answer to that as the, the best approach just to find those um, times of reflection? Chris, uh, just recently I've had some awarenesses about time that I'm here on the planet for a short time in the scale of things and what can I do in that, that short time. And that gave me some urgency to, uh, okay, what's really important here? And uh, I'll acknowledge I've had challenges, big challenges, um, ups and downs with uh, some, or something we didn't talk about right back at the beginning was um, it's possible that when a parent, or it happened for me, uh, that my questioning led me to community and my questioning or our commit questioning uh, wasn't the same as my, as my wife. And we started to divert in our, in our choices of way of living. And that can happen. And uh, I noticed it a lot in communities that um, someone, a partner, was really, really engaged and wanting to be part of community and the other wasn't. And if they couldn't work that out, it makes it very difficult because if one person wants to live in a three-bedroom house in the suburbs and the other person says, oh, actually, I want our kids to be uh, running, running together in a in a community and knowing each other, the neighbours, and um, it can cause a significant rift in the in the family, and that's what that's what happened with with my experience. Uh, and I'm still, I suppose, um, looking at and creating a life now um, for how I want to live communally. And I've just started a wonderful relationship with someone who wants to do that as well. Yeah. So there's a word of warning there um, that it can cause a difference unless that you're aligned mm. with your significant other who 
the parenting together with um, uh, to have these really good conversations. How do you, how do you want to live? So that there's a collective why. Um, and that may be a choice to say, well, actually, you don't want it and it means us separating, so therefore I'm not going to do it. Or it may mean the other two. Or it may mean an evolution where both of you choose to, to live communion. So there's one thing I want to mention, and, and then what I'm hearing in your answer is basically that, that maybe trying to find it yourself isn't actually even the right approach, actually finding it with loved ones and, and then perhaps as well with the community that you want to yes. create is actually the right way to go about this. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Great. There's an African proverb that um, I really enjoy. If you want to go fast, go mm. alone. If you want to go far, go together. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> on the um, relationship reflection you're talking about there, I just want to mention, and I think the name of the book is The Big Questions. Ah, okay. Yeah, and I'm not sure how we found it, but it, my wife and I came across it just before we got married, and I highly recommend it. And it is, um, I don't know if there's 100 questions or something like that, but it goes into all of the little details of, you know, in raising our, you know, how many children do we want to have? How many? And it's it's like it's a huge spectrum of really specific, detailed questions that make you decide exactly how you do want your family life and your relationship life to be. Um, I'll I'll look it up and I'll include it in the link. But it's a, a fantastic thing to um, self-explore and then especially explore with your partner and kind of make sure. We'll see where you're on the same page with things and where you differ. Yes. Yeah, what kind of food are we going to eat? All these kind of things. Um, I want to ask you about, so the podcast is work-life balance and, and work-life is not a like um, NVC. It's not my favourite term, but it's the one that I think is more well-known. Um, what, um, you know, you, you've said in this talk that you're, very much living the the way that you want to live. It, 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 it's quite deliberate. And, and what is um, what is balance in your life? I mean, I guess we've gone into that a fair bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, what's the, the shape of your life at the moment? And it, does it differ from the ideal or are you right where you want to be? Uh, Chris, to, to clarify, I am... Uh returning to crystal waters i am yes uh, and i've had time of uh, after the phd of reflecting and falling apart and then picking my socks up a bit of what happens after phd because a phd is quite an intense period of uh, singular focus on a topic to get it done with with supported income and now I'm at the, the place of, uh, okay, how can this best serve people? How can I be of service? And that's led me away from the community and I'm realising I, uh, I, I function and want to function better in a communal living arrangement. Um, uh, getting work-life balance is, is really, really important. Um, 
there's something to mention from the research, and that is uh, the differences of an eco-village, a rural, remote eco-village, uh, which is like crystal waters, or in Europe, the ones I visited, Seedon, Linden, Seg, Fintorn, um, there's Tamera in uh, Portugal, there's Oroville uh, uh, um, in southern India. These are quite large places, quite large communities, I should say, of yeah, different sizes, but generally it's large. Like Crystal Waters is anywhere from 180 to 250 people living in a generally rural area um, and uh, communities in Australia, in my opinion, from what I've seen in research, uh, rural communities often struggle because there's not as much work, not as much uh, good paid work uh, and um, therefore people either need to generate their income from elsewhere and bring it back to the community or they need to travel. And this is statistically all over the world in eco-villages as well. Something to, to add here is if you, do, if you are interested in looking at uh, intentional community living arrangements around the world, there's the Fellowship for Intentional Community which um, people, uh, FIC.org, I think it is, um, and that uh, is United States-based, but it's uh, showing how to live communally and also communities around the world. And the other that I'm a member of and also on the management community, the uh, Global Eco-Village Network Australia, which lists communities uh, here in Australia who, who want to be part of it, part of the association, uh, connected to the global eco-village network of 10,000 communities around the world. So eco-villages tend to be rural. They tend to be uh, larger and they tend to be, have, in my opinion, challenges of, uh, of work, work that uh, sustains uh, mm. income, sustains people to live. And Australia, we, we live in the, um, the second least affordable nation in the world, housing-wise. And we've got a big housing challenge, we're having crisis. Uh, my experience of living in a remote community or rural community, unless I did some sort of labouring work, there wasn't a lot of opportunities, which is partly why I've chosen to leave and think, okay, well, I'll go and get a job in um, community development but it means I'm closer to, to the urban society. So that's eco-villages. Co-housing, by contrast, is usually in urban or suburban areas. We don't have many here in Australia, but where there is co-housing becoming more commonplace in the urban space. Co-housing is usually 12 to 25 dwellings um, that are purposefully architecturally designed um, to be in an urban footprint. And that means that people can, uh, can go to work, can go to school and do all the things that they normally would, but they come home and they're in a, in a communal living arrangement. And to me, that's a utopia. Um, I, I personally... Uh, don't function as well in an urban setting 
because of the busyness and the, I, I really seek nature and nature sustains and I've, or we're part of nature. Um, so I'm choosing to live in uh, a more rural area. Um, and therefore, my work-life balance will need to be a mixture between teaching and, uh, and professional consulting or development and also some form of farming. So my, my, uh, early to, my early studies were in agriculture. So I'm looking to uh, how can I develop an enterprise inside a community that generates income from, um, from the rural base that helps other people, that's collaborative. Mm. Um, what I've seen in rural communities that I've visited throughout Europe is that a lot of people worked in the community physically uh, quite a bit. Um, Stephen Linden, I think it was um, uh, four hours per day, five days a week. Uh, because they produced 40% of their food. Right. <clears throat> um, yeah. Whereas a, a community here in Australia, Crystal Waters, for instance, I think it's eight hours per month. So there's, there's that um, not necessarily having the same amount of work in the community. This, this is a whole area that I could go into a lot more detail in. Because a lot of people often ask about this, this thing called contribution. Because you do have to contribute to the community. But we could do that another time if you want to. Cool. Yeah. Um, we'll probably need to wrap up sometime soon. Um, yeah. But um, look, I'm I'm really interested in that. Uh, maybe like the. I mean that, that's a that's a challenge of of modern life is 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 having money to pay your rent and, and I, I guess potentially um, in community that might be less and therefore you might be able to work less. But it's, um, I personally find, and I don't think this is uncommon, um, just work takes up such, uh, earning income for the rest of life just takes up such a significant portion of life and I'm always trying to, that that's a big part of, um, balance for me personally and um, I, yeah I don't, I don't know like and, and that's actually for me a, a barrier mentally at least to the idea of living in community where I do have a vision where I want my family my children and friends family to be living on the land and um, spending a lot of time exploring in nature schooling from home these kind of things um, but how can we possibly make ends meet um, financially if we're spending a whole bunch of time just living and, and being in the world rather than working? Uh, community has answers, Chris. Yeah. Uh, just the fact of sharing space, there's sharing resources that don't have to be purchased. So I, I haven't uh, come across a really in-depth study yet, but there is um, more and more researchers looking into this space. How much does it cost to live in community? And can you, um, that, is it good sense? As in C-E-N-T-S as well as S-E-N-S-E. Um, but one place I did see that was really inspiring um, 
I visited Kenigness in uh, the hills, the Adelaide Hills in South Australia. And they're a community that had chosen right at the beginning to have a common purse. And common mm. purse meant that they had agreements about how they'd spend money and how they'd have income come in. And they chose as a community and professionals and educated people and people who were capable said, let's own our cars collectively. Guess what happened? They ended up having less cars. It was, sure. it, was a, yeah. it was a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, a car, ten to $15,000 per year per family. If you halve that, how many hours don't you have to work? And then if you're adding to that a laundry, a washing machine, um, a media room, so instead of having to buy the latest TV or whatever, that you share a TV that you only use once a week or something, um, it starts to become good sense to share. As long as you've got good agreements. And um, what I notice is also that um, self-contained dwellings, they end up being smaller. Mm. And the larger spaces, like the gardens or the community kitchen or things like that, um, tend to be where the communal uh, ownership happens um, they can be the larger investment, but the individual investment can be smaller because you're living in a smaller place and you're, you're choosing to live in a smaller space and share other things. Mm -hmm. So I personally am moving back to Crystal Waters. My car, uh, I've often, I actually purchased it for the purpose of co car sharing. I'd like to own a ute and a car and a people carrier with about three or four other families mm. so that we're sharing the, the whole cost of all of those and we're getting multiple uses. Um, to me, it sounds, sounds sensible to do. And again, in a time on the planet, we need to be doing more of this. It's, it's really important to be reducing our costs. So in doing that, if you're not spending as much, then you're not needing to earn as much. Mm. All right, cool. I like that. And uh, there's a in, in a kind of a sharing economy. There's a lot of um, trust in other people, but I suppose that again comes back to the why and and to um, you know a deliberate commitment to skilled, compassionate communication. Yeah. Cool. All right. Look. Um, Thank you very much. Like this has like personally been really valuable for me. Um, and I, I think I kind of feel like that's not a bad place to wrap it up. Yes. Yeah. Is there anything that you'd like to add before we do? Um, great question. I didn't think of this one. Chris. <laughs> um, uh, you don't have to. I, it, th there's a point that uh, I often reflect on, um, and I touched upon it before about time. If not now, then when? If not who? Then mm. If not you, then who? Um, and uh, if you are uh, questioning, then chances are that you're already on the steps towards 
uh, a communal living arrangement of some sort. And it doesn't have to be the fully integrated intentional community of an eco-village or co-housing. It can start with two families living beside each other, removing part of the fence and sharing the vegetables, sharing a lawnmower, co-parenting, whatever it looks like, it can start with there and it off does start there. Uh, so my encouragement is what can you do now right today that starts the process of a communal living arrangement where you already are and you might be surprised that it can happen quicker and easier than you think. And it probably already is happening subtly and you're just not aware of it. Imagine if that subtle um, little bit that you're doing can become the common thing that you do regularly. Cool. That, that's, 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 a, that's wonderful words to finish on. And it's true as you say that, I, I think about um, how friends' children feel very at home in our home and, you know, we're on the holidays now, they'll just come and sleep there and vice versa, our children, we, we know. Yeah, there's a, there's a blending of family and a blurring of family boundaries, which I am really grateful as a part of our children's lives. And, yeah, cool. Jason, thank you so much uh, for this conversation. It was really, really uh, rewarding and wonderful. And, um, yeah, I look forward to talking to you further separately and perhaps um, I'll, I'll drag you back on here again in the future if I can. Okay. And um, as, a, as, a, as a last point, if anyone is interested to talk with me about, is it okay to? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah if, any, if anyone is interested to see the work that uh, I have been involved in and also the things that are coming up, um, jasonhilder.com is the website that I've just started. Really excited about that. And uh, that's got contact details on there. And over time it will um, show courses and things like that that are available. And I'm really interested to help people who want to take that transitionary steps into how do I make this happen? Because that's part of um, what I'm here to do while I went to uh, go through the journey of bringing knowledge to other people is, is what I'm doing. Cool. Thank you very much. I'm going to finish it there. If you're listening to this and it's the first time, <clears throat> what I do, I don't do editing of the um, Unfinished Cubby episodes, but I do include a preamble. So this is happening before the conversation. Jason's just joining me now. And then I'll put this at the end just for you to listen to a little bit extra. Jason, good morning. Good morning. Mr. Randall, how are you? Pretty good. I'm a lot better than I was uh, this time 24 hours ago, so thank you for postponing. 
Yep, yep, hang on. I'm just going to turn off the lights. Well, maybe I can put it in the background. This is about the best light capability I can do. Is that okay? Sure, 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 sure. Um, I mean, it's a podcast, so um, it's only the YouTube people that uh, miss out on seeing your beautiful face. So, uh, will will any of it be videoed, or uh, is it only audio? No, I normally do upload it to YouTube as well. Yeah. 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 Okay. Is that right? Okay. Um, uh, yeah, it is. I'm just thinking if I can do something else with light. Look, I, I yeah. I, <laughs> I think it's fine uh, too. I think we can go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So good morning. And All right. I'll um. I'll do. So I'll, I'll do a little uh do a little intro bit. I always say um. I always say, um, I really got to work on that, but 